It's time for Cootie Shots, where we tell you everything you need to know about vaccines. Spoiler alert, they're kind of important. And the boards agree, with this topic accounting for up to 5% of your exam. Pay attention. Hey everyone, it's Ashley Grigsby, and this episode of, P- of Peas in a Pod's Cootie Shots is actually going to be a compilation of basically all the cootie shots we've ever done. When I was studying for boards uh, in the fall, I, like a few days before, really wanted to go through all the cootie shots and all the milestones. And it, I found that it actually was a total pain in the butt, which I'm sure some of you have found. And so this will be basically a way for you to just do all of them for like good right before the test uh, study kind of cram session. Uh, I've organized them on this cootie shots to be in the order of when you give them. So they're not in order of when they were published, but for example, hep B will be the very first one because that's the very first vaccine that a kid gets. And meningococcal and HPV will be towards the end of the, of the series here because they are given more at the 12, uh, 11 and 12 years of age. So it'll hopefully help you kind of organize them, them in your mind of what is old, like what is given when they're older and what is given when they're babies to try and kind of make it a little bit better for studying. Also, what I'm going to do is, so this doesn't get lost for you and you have to go find it later, we will have a link to just this uh, compilation of cootie shots on our website, Peds in a Blog, under the podcast tab. So if you just click on it, you'll be able to find it and there'll be like a little uh, click you can so you can have it quickly. So again, that's pedsinablog.com and that's our new website starting this month. So with that, we will get started with hepatitis B. This month, we are going to talk about the hepatitis B vaccine, B as in boy. Remember that this is a leading cause of liver disease in our country. And I am assuming in the Canada, as I know a lot of our listeners are from Canada, it also is a cause of hepatocellular carcinoma. So it's important that we prevent this whenever possible, especially because up to a third of cases have no identifiable risk factor for acquiring hepatitis B. So the first dose should occur directly after birth. This should happen before they leave the hospital. The second dose should happen one to two months of age, and this third dose between six and 18 months. So what's commonly done is at birth, at the two-month well-child check, and again at the six-month well-child check. This should complete their hepatitis B series. Now, oftentimes questions, and in real life, I've had this happen multiple times, where the mother is known to have hepatitis surface antigen positive, so active hepatitis B. At that time, the baby should actually receive a hepatitis B immunoglobulin in the first 12 hours of life, and then again have routine vaccination. They will also need follow-up serologic testing at 9 to 12 months of age to make sure that they have seroconverted and have antibodies without active disease. Remember, any patient that you are presented with, especially high-risk patients, so immunocompromised, hemodialysis patients, IV drug abusers, which hopefully you aren't seeing a ton of as a pediatric physician, however, I see frequently, or any child who has not received full vaccination should have a full vaccination series done. There's only one contraindication to hepatitis B vaccine, and that is an allergy to previous vaccination. Immunocompromised state is not a contraindication to 
vaccination. In fact, it's probably a reason to vaccinate. Also, in premature infants, weighing less than two kilograms still should receive this vaccine before discharge from the hospital. However, that vaccine will not count towards their primary series. They will still need three doses after they grow to greater than two kilograms. You may also be questioned about post-exposure prophylaxis. If someone is known to have had contact with hepatitis B, maybe from a needle stick or sexual encounter, if they have received the vaccine and they're antibody negative, then they will need to have immunoglobulin and a full series of revaccination with the serology testing afterwards. In other unvaccinated patients who have exposure, again, you should treat them with immunoglobulin and a full vaccination series following. So take-home points. Hepatitis B vaccination is very important, can help prevent later liver disease and hepatocellular carcinoma. First dose should happen at birth before discharge home. They should receive immunoglobulin and vaccination if the mother was surface antigen positive. And then they should receive two more vaccinations, usually at the two-month and six-month well-child checks. The only contraindication to vaccination is allergic reaction to this vaccine. That's it. Okay, today we are going to cover the pneumococcal vaccine. This is in the United States known as Prevnar for most of us, and this is the 13-valent pneumococcal covers streptococcus pneumoniae, 13 different serotypes of that bacteria. This is a pretty horrible bacteria, frequently causes pneumonia, meningitis, bacteremia, can be very deadly, and prior to vaccination was a very common cause of serious bacterial infections. However, with vaccines, surprise, surprise, we've reduced the risk of this infection substantially. The current recommendations for vaccines for the 13 serotype vaccine, so Prevnar, is at 2 four, six, and 12 months. You can do that fourth one between 12 and 15 months, but two, four, six months of age, and then at a year. There is also a recommendation that if you're at high risk of invasive pneumococcal disease to receive a second dose of Prevnar after age six. It's important to remember that people without a spleen, so immunocompromised people, especially those with without a spleen, with functional asplenia, like seen in sickle cell disease, transplant patients who are immunocompromised, HIV patients, and any other kind of immune deficiency patients, those patients should actually receive an additional pneumococcal vaccine, which is the 23-valent vaccine, which has 11 additional serotypes that the Prevnar does not. So immune deficiencies, they should receive this 23-valent vaccine at age 6 and additionally five years later as a booster vaccine to make sure that they are adequately covered against this. As a reminder, asplenics and functional asplenics are at increased risk of pneumococcal disease because it is an encapsulated organism in which the spleen is uh, one of our first-line defenses against this. Everyone should get Prevnar 13, 2, 4, 6, and 12, 12 months of age. And then if you have immunocompromised status, you should receive the 23-valent vaccine at age six as well. These, The Prevnar and the 23-valent vaccine have to be received eight weeks apart, just FYI. So the pneumococcal vaccination schedule is actually pretty complicated, and initially I was hoping this wouldn't actually be super important, but I think it 
is highly tested on the boards. And so I want to go over it just a little bit. This is an additional thing that I've putting in the compilation. It's not in the original Cootie Shots episode. So everyone basically, like we talked about, gets the Prevnar 13. So basically two, four, six months, and at 12 to 15 months of age. Okay, that's everyone. Then if you are immunocompromised, so that includes functional asplenia, HIV, true asplenia, malignancy, a transplant, um, weird like skid, weird immune deficiencies, then you actually need an additional booster of Prevnar 13, plus you need a Prevnar 23. I'm going to call it Prevnar. It's just the 23 valent. It's not truly Prevnar. So the PCV or PPSV 23. Those people will get an extra Prevnar 13 plus a 23 valent vaccine eight weeks after the additional Prevnar 13. They have to be eight weeks apart. Additionally, people with diabetes or chronic heart disease or kidney disease who aren't truly like immune suppressed, but they're not exactly a healthy kiddo. Those kids actually also get a Prevnar 23. I'm sorry. They also get a 23 valent vaccine after the age of two, but they don't need the extra booster of Prevnar 13. And then to make things even more complicated, that same group that we talked about before, the very immunocompromised people, so the asplenia, the HIV, the transplant patients, they actually need an additional 23 booster. So that booster needs to come five years after their initial 23 booster. Again, it is a very complicated schedule, but it's important just to know that especially immunocompromised people, they are going to get a bunch of extra of these. They're going to get an extra Prevnar 13 and they're going to get a, they're going to get the 23 valent vaccine. And then five years after their 23 valent, they're going to get another 23 valent. I think that's enough for pneumococcal. Okay, everyone, this episode, Cootie Shot, is on Haemophilus influenza type B. The vaccine is only against type B, not against the non-typable Haemophilus influenza. The most important thing to know about this is that it has drastically decreased the incidence of invasive disease caused by type B in Haemophilus influenza, which most notably is meningitis and epiglottitis. The dosing of this vaccine depends somewhat on the actual brand of the vaccine, but the most important thing to know is that it starts at age two months, and the three-dose vaccine will be given at two, four, and six months, and the two-dose vaccine will be given at two and four months. So it's kind of the exact same. If you end up with a three-dose vaccine, you just add the six-month uh, shot. That's literally all you have to know about Haemophilus influenza type B vaccine. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk about DTAP and TDAP, which are basically the same thing, just a little bit different. There are basically two large differences. So one, the DTAP, which is big D, big T, little a, and big P, is diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis. This is given to little kiddos. So this is the one that you get at two, four, six and then at 15 to 18 months, okay? This is for the little kids in diapers. The D is for diapers. At age seven, you become kind of a grown-up teenager, and you get Tdap. And the reason for that is that the 
P, the pertussis, is a smaller dose in the Tdap because the Dtap has too much pertussis for adults or older kids to get. So at seven years of age, you go to Tdap. It's really not that confusing. Just which, which age gets which one, and that's all you really need to know about that. Remember that there are a couple absolute contraindications, and there are a couple things that they might try and trick you up with on the board. So uh, some contraindications, serious allergic reaction. So that's like real allergic reaction. You shouldn't give it. If you get encephalopathy within seven days of receiving either vaccine, then you can never get Tdap or Dtap again. However, the encephalitis is actually secondary to the pertussis, so you can get regular tetanus, so TD, the tetanus and diphtheria, without the pertussis later, if if that comes up. Um, and you have to make sure there's no other cause of the reaction before you never let them have uh, tetanus, Tdap, or Dtap ever again. It is perfectly uh, normal and acceptable, and you should do it, to give Tdap in pregnancy and in breastfeeding, both safe, also safe in immunosuppressive states, so people with lupus or uh, sickle cell without a spleen or HIV, AIDS, even if their CD4 count is low, they can still receive Tdap or Dtap. It is not a contraindication to those things. Um, even if they're kind of sick, they can get it. Uh, if they have normal neuro, neuro diseases like cerebral palsy or really there's really no reason not to give it, so just give it. Unless, unless they've had encephalitis from the pertussis. These vaccines are given at two, four, six months of age and at the 15 to 18 month visit. And then that's for the DTAP because they're little babies. And then remember, we give them a booster at their adolescent visit. So 11 to 12 year old, they can get the Tdap as their booster. Let's now talk about something near and dear to my heart, wound management and tetanus. The question always comes up, when do we need to give a tetanus shot for a wound in the ED, and when do we need to give nothing or even more tetanus immunoglobulin? So let's start with clean wounds. If you have a clean wound, you never have to give immune globulin, so that's easy. If it's clean, you just stop thinking about immune globulin. Now you just have to decide if they need a tetanus vaccine. If they've had less than three vaccines in the series, so less than three Tdap or Dtaps, then they will need a vaccine at the time of the wound, wherever you're at. If they have received three vaccines, but it's been longer than 10 years for a clean wound, then they also will need a booster. You can give a TD, Tdap, or Dtap, I guess, if they were young enough. If, if they are young enough to receive Dtap, and they have not had any vaccine series, and they have a clean wound, that would be a time to give that. Then you become. Then you have to ask yourself about dirty wounds. So if you have a dirty wound, then and they have received less than three vaccines in the series, then they will need immune globulin and a tetanus vaccine, both of them. If it's dirty and they have an incomplete series, so either never been vaccinated for tetanus or less than three vaccines. If it's been more than five years since their last tetanus shot. Even if they've received a total of three, then they will need a booster. They won't need immune globulin if it's a dirty wound. It's really, it's actually not that hard if you just break it down into clean or dirty. So you just decide, is this a super clean wound or is this a really dirty wound? If it's clean, then you're done. 
it's not that hard. If it's clean, they don't need immunoglobulin. You just decide, do they need a tetanus booster? If they've never had a vaccine, then they need their first in a series of vaccines. If they've had at least three and it's been less than five years, they don't even need a booster. Now, if the wound is dirty, then you got to decide, do they need immune globulin? So if they need immune globulin, it's because they've had less than three tetanus vaccines. If they've had three tetanus vaccines, but it's been more than a year, I'm sorry, more than 10 years, then you will just need a booster, but no immunoglobulin. So you only give immunoglobulin if they've never had three tetanus shots and it's a dirty wound. And the rest you can probably figure out. As promised, we're going to talk about polio today. And if you remember, it's an enterovirus. So we know that that means it's spread enteral oral. This is actually one of my favorite diseases because I think the history is fascinating. Prior to the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, we did not have water treatment. And so infants were often exposed to fecal contaminated water early on in life. Because of this, they were seeing polio prior to becoming an older child. And in infants, the polio virus often doesn't cause the poliomyelitis. And so, yes, prior to the 1800s, kids were dying of polio, although the babies were often just having viral symptoms. And so when they got polio later on life, they had antibodies and didn't get the same kind of poliomyelitis that we saw in the, in the 50s that required the iron lung and all of that. So when we started cleaning our water in the late 1800s and 1900s, infants were not being exposed to polio like they had before. And so the first time kids were seeing polio, as the story went in the 1950s, was that kid goes to the pool, they see some poop in the water because someone pooped their pants in the water, and they now were exposed to polio, and they developed the poliomyelitis that required the iron lung to help them breathe. Luckily, we now have a vaccine, so we don't need to feed our infants poop water. We can just give them the vaccine. The one you use in the United States is the inactivated polio vaccine, the IPV. Previously, the oral polio vaccine was used. However, there have been cases of polio from this vaccine, so it's no longer recommended in the United States, although it is sometimes used in other third world countries. The IPV is given in four doses. The first three doses are given at two, four, and six months of age. And the fourth dose should be given at four years, regardless of how many they've had before four years. So even if you give them an extra dose, say at two years of age, they should still get another dose at four years of age to help make sure they have the immunity needed for that age group. So again, IPV, inactivated polio vaccine, is given at two, four, six months of age and at age four, regardless of previous doses. The vaccine that we have left is rotavirus. It's very easy. It's an oral vaccine. The old vaccine used to cause intussusception. However, the new vaccine does not, and there is no current link between intussusception and the rotavirus vaccine. Depending on the vaccine, you either need two or three shots. I'm going to say shots, but really it's an oral vaccine. If you have RV1 vaccine, you only need two doses. So one at two months and one at four months. 
If you have RV5 vaccine, you need one at two, four, and six months of age. If your child is delayed, like if you have a child that's delayed in their vaccines and they're coming to you late, after 15 weeks of age, you should no longer start the vaccine series. So if they're 15, month, 15 weeks old and they have not had a single rotavirus vaccine, then you do not start the series. However, if they've already started the series before 15 weeks, then you finish the series, whatever that is, two or three vaccines. That's literally it, guys. We are going to talk today about the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella, one that gets a lot of press, but is also very important. So let's start with the basics. Who should receive this? Basically, everyone, unless you've become one of the groups we'll talk about later. So children are recommended to receive the first dose of MMR between 12 and 15 months of age and a second dose from four to six years old, so right before they start school. International travelers, healthcare professionals, women of childbearing age who are not pregnant should be counseled on the importance of MMR vaccination. Also, those who care for immunocompromised people, people who have HIV but do not have severe immunosuppression, they should also receive the MMR vaccine if they have not already or have some antibodies or serology testing to confirm immunity. Of note, infants... Uh, or not infants, but children six months of age and older can safely receive the MMR vaccine and they should be given MMR if they are traveling internationally to protect them against measles. Uh, infants who receive their first MMR between six and 11 months actually will still need to have another dose at 12 to 15 months and then a third dose at four to six years of age. So if they receive an early dose of MMR, you should still keep them on the same schedule that you would a normal kid. I want to say that again because the boards do like to specifically ask about vaccinations for HIV-infected patients, and the MMR is safe for HIV patients. Now, if they do have severe immunosuppression, so less than 200 CD4 count, then this would not be appropriate, but just an HIV alone is safe to give MMR, and they should receive MMR on the normal vaccination schedule of 12 months and four to six years. Other contraindications to MMR are pregnancy. Now, there are no actual cases of rubella being passed by MMR vaccine. However, rubella in newborn babies passed from mom is pretty horrible. So it is recommended that no pregnant patient or anyone who's trying to get pregnant be immunized with MMR, and they do recommend that you do not attempt to get pregnant for four weeks following vaccination. Other contraindications include history of anaphylaxis to neomycin, has to do with ingredients in the MMR vaccine, anaphylaxis to previous dose, which is is not hard to remember, and uh, again, any other form of severe immunodeficiency. So, on chemotherapy from a cancer standpoint, congenital immunodeficiency, people on long-term immunosuppressive therapy for other reasons, these are people who probably shouldn't receive the MMR vaccine. Another thing the boards want you to know is what to do in the event of an outbreak. Now, believe it or not, people don't vaccinate their kids anymore, and 
there have been many outbreaks, one of the, which was at Disneyland, which is just not okay. So what do you do? You have a parent. They bring in their kid. They say, hey, I was at Disneyland and all these people have measles. What should I do? So if the patient is not vaccinated, they should be vaccinated with MMR vaccine within 72 hours of the exposure. If for some reason they didn't, you could not get them, you didn't see them within the 72 hours, you can give immuno immunoglobulin to measles within six days that should help prevent at least some of the symptoms and severity of illness. Healthcare workers who are exposed also need to, if they don't have evidence of immunity, should receive the MMR vaccine within 72 hours as well. Remember that if you have a six-month-old or a seven-month-old who is exposed to measles, they should be vaccinated with the MMR vaccine it is safe after six months. It's just that they will need to be re-vaccinated at 12 months of age. I've said that like 15 times, so I'm hoping you guys will remember it. Basically, vaccinate MMR at 12 to 15 months and again at, at kindergarten, so four to six years of age. If you remember from the last cootie shots, this is actually the same for varicella. And there is a new formulation, MMRV, which can be given for MMR and varicella combined. Remember that a contraindication to MMRV is a history of febrile seizures. And if you give it, you need to counsel your patients that within about 12 days of this vaccine, they are at increased risk of febrile seizures with the MMRV combination. That's it for MMR. Remember, 12 to 15 months, four to six years, and make sure you repeat it if their first dose is prior to one year of age. This month, we're going to be talking about varicella, which causes chicken pox and later in life shingles. The varicella vaccine is a live attenuated vaccine, which sometimes can cause uh, some people some confusion when it comes to board exams and who can receive these live vaccines and who cannot, which we will discuss. The vaccine is given 12 to 15 months of age. And then again, there's a booster prior to starting kindergarten. So who can receive the varicella vaccine? The answer is everyone except the following. So pregnant ladies cannot receive varicella vaccine because of the live uh, nature of the vaccine. If they've had a prior allergic reaction to the vaccine or if they have severe immunosuppression. Actual AIDS, so a CD4 count less than 200. If they've had a significant bone marrow transplant, if they're on chemotherapy currently, these are reasons that you would hold off on the varicella vaccine. Most providers will hold the varicella vaccine until three months post-chemotherapy treatment unless the child has acute lymphoblastic leukemia. In those cases, after they are in remission, even if it hasn't been three months, vaccine with varicella is recommended because they are at such high risk of uh, complications from varicella. It's important to remember for the exam that HIV itself is not a contraindication to this vaccine. In fact, they are at higher risk of complications from varicella. So if their CD4 count is above 200, then they should receive the varicella vaccine. It's also okay to give a child a varicella vaccine if their mother is pregnant. You can't give the mother vac the vaccine, but the child can receive the vaccine. Another question that often comes up on the boards is who do we prophylax with varicella imm immunoglobulin uh, after exposure to varicella if they are not immunized? The answer is basically pregnant women who have no immunity, immunocompromised uh, patients, 
newborn infants if their mother contracted varicella within five days of their birth or hospitalized premature infants who have had exposure to varicella. These patients might actually benefit from varicella immunoglobulin. And in your regular patients who are exposed to varicella, uh, who are not immunocompromised, they can receive the varicella vaccine after exposure to um, someone else with chickenpox. As long as it's been within 72 hours, there actually is some benefit to um, vaccinating to help decrease complications of the, the natural disease process. And that's it, varicella. We're going to talk about hepatitis A today. Uh, if you listen to A&D do ID this month, you will hear all about the hepatitises, including hepatitis A. But hepatitis A vaccine uh, is an important vaccine to help prevent, obviously, hepatitis A, which can cause a lot of uh, morbidity and mortality, worse in uh, third world countries, but we do see a lot here in the United States. The vaccine should first be given at one year of age. There is a caveat to that. If a patient is traveling to an endemic area of hepatitis A and they are less than a year of age, then they actually should receive passive immunization with immune globulin uh, prior to one year of age. If they're over a year, you should give them the shot if they have not had it yet, uh, at least four weeks before traveling to uh, an endemic area of hepatitis A. They need a total of two doses throughout their lives, so one a year and then in one at least six months later. So two doses total, and then you're done with the whole series. There's only really a couple contraindications to hepatitis A vaccination. One of them is obviously an allergic reaction to a prior vaccine, like the first shot that they got of hepatitis A, or if they are allergic to any of its components, especially aluminum hydroxide or phenoxethanol. I'm going to be honest, I can't say it. Phenoxethanol. Remember that immunocompromised states are not a contraindication to vaccination with hepatitis A. If anything, you should vaccinate them more because they're more at risk of getting it and getting sicker from it. That's it. It's not that hard. Hepatitis A. I thought this was the perfect time of year to talk about influenza vaccine. To be honest, we've almost covered all of the vaccinations. So if you go back through, you will hit almost every single one. We still have one or two left to do. However, we have not done influenza, so here we go. Influenza vaccine obviously protects you against the influenza virus. It is recommended to vaccinate all children aged six months to 18 years. And usually these vaccines start in September to October, and it really just depends on your local supply. Currently, The only supply in Indiana we have is an inactivated influenza virus, which is administered like any other vaccine, IM, and approved for kids over six months. Some years there will be a live attenuated nasal spray. That is only approved for kids over two years. So just remember that like, if you have an infant who's six months, they can get a flu vaccine shot, but they can't get the live nasal spray. Also remember that Kids under nine years of age, so six months to eight years, they have to have two flu vaccines in the first season that they have the flu shot. So if the very first time they ever get a flu shot and they're four years old, then they need two flu shots that year to make sure that they get adequate protection. From then on, they can just get one flu vaccine a year, but they have to that first season get two. 
Once you hit nine years of age, you can stop. You don't have to have the two vaccines if you've never been immunized before. So if their very first flu shot ever is at age nine, then they can just get one flu shot that season. Remember that kids under six months of age cannot get the flu shot. So the only way to protect them is to get everyone in the whole household vaccinated. And that should be part of your anticipatory guidance and counseling for your families of young infants. It is recommended that all pregnant women get a flu shot while they're pregnant if they're going into flu season. The flu vaccine is recommended for all kids between 6 months and 18 years. However, it's also recommended for all caregivers of children who have high-risk conditions under the age of 5. So kids like with chronic medical problems like cardiac disease or asthma or immunosuppression or renal problems or anything that makes them at higher risk if they got the flu to be vaccinated as well. The one thing that does sometimes come up is can people get the flu vaccine if they're allergic to eggs? The answer is kind of. So if children with egg allergies only get hives, then they can get the flu vaccine normally, but they watch them for 30 minutes. If they have an anaphylaxis to egg allergies, then they should not get the flu vaccine until they've had skin testing by an allergist. So that's why it's kind of. If it's just hives, they can get the vaccine and be watched in the office. If it's anaphylaxis, they probably need real skin testing and immunization in the allergist's office to make sure it's safe. And that's it. Influenza. Go get your flu shot. Today's topic is the meningococcal vaccine. Very important if you don't want to get meningitis. The vaccine includes four serotypes that you need to know. They are Y, W, C, and A. And if you notice, that's very similar to a little song by the village people. Feel free to dance along. Y, W, C, and A. This vaccine is given at the 11 to 12 year well child visit. If they are immunocompromised, say they have HIV or a splenia from sickle cell, then they actually should get it anytime after two years of age. So 11 to 12 in a normal person, greater than two if they're immunocompromised. It is important to know that the original meningococcal vaccine did not include the B serotype. However, there are two new vaccines on the market that do cover the serotype B. Um, it's unlikely that your board exams will be this up to date because they are so new, but for completeness sake, I will mention them here. These vaccines called Bexero and Trumenba are currently recommended for children greater than 10 years of age who are at high risk. So those that do not have a spleen or who have functional asplenia, those with weird complement disorders or uh, immunocompromised patients in general. Um, these vaccines can be given to anyone age 16 to 23 as well. And that's about it for the meningococcal vaccine. Remember, normally includes serotypes YWCA, is recommended at the 11 to 12 year visit, or anyone with immunocompromised after age two. We'll see you next time on Cootie Shots. Hey everyone, this month's episode is going to discuss the human papillomavirus vaccine, HPV. 
HPV is the most common STI in the United States, about 14 million new cases each year. Two of the strains, uh, HPV 16 and 18, are known to be oncogenic and they often can cause cervical cancer. This is the goal of HPV vaccination, is to decrease the chance of cervical cancer. The boards tend to love HPV, so you should know this one. Types 6 and 11 have the potential to cause genital warts. 16 and 18 are the ones that can cause cancer. There are two types of vaccination, both called Gardasil. Gardasil, the normal Gardasil is four strains. It's 6, 11, 16, and 18. Gardasil 9 is a newer approved, um, FDA approved uh, HPV vaccination, and it covers more strains. So it covers nine strains. I think probably what you really need to know is Gardasil covers 6, 11, 16, and 18. It is recommended to be given at age 11 or 12 at their well-child check, but you can give it as early as nine years, and you can give it through 26 years. Any adolescent, male and female, should receive the HPV, HPV vaccine at 11 or 12 years of age. They need two doses, each separated by 6 to 12 months. After 15 years of age, if you haven't had the vaccine, you actually will need three doses, the second dose given at two months, and then again at six months after the first vaccination. So again, all males and females should get Gardasil, which is HPV vaccine against 6, 11, 16, and 18. And 16 and 18 are the ones known to cause cervical cancer. That's it. Now that we have covered all of the vaccines the boards need us to know, we are going to start talking about some special situations when it comes to vaccination. Today I'm going to talk about vaccine schedules in asplenia and functional asplenia. Remember that this means anatomical asplenia, surgical asplenia, and functional asplenia, which is most commonly thought of in sickle cell disease, and this occurs around age, between ages one and two. So all kids with uh, any of these common uh, causes of asplenia need to be treated um, the same when it comes to vaccinations. So remember that all patients without a spleen have increased risk of encapsulated organism infection. As a refresher, remember the mnemonic for encapsulated organisms. Some killer bacteria have pretty nice capsules. So some is streptococcal pneumoniae, which is the big one that we really, really worry about. Killers, Klebsiella. B, bacteria is Bacillus. H is Haemophilus, influenza. P is Pseudomonas aeruginosa. N is Neisseria. And C, the capsule, is Cryptococcus neoformans. So that some killer bacteria have pretty nice capsules. And if you think about that, as the mnemonic, only three of those actually have vaccines. So that's streptococcal pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenza, and Neisseria meningitidis. That being said, now you know which vaccines have special recommendations for asplenia. It's the three that are for encapsulated organisms. Okay, the first vaccine is Hib, Haemophilus influenza type B. Like all vaccines, asplenic patients should receive all of their normal vaccinations. However, there'll be some extra doses um, depending on if they're asplenic or not. So for Hib, they should just get their normal vaccine schedule. However, if they didn't get their normal vaccine schedule and then maybe they lose their spleen later, like maybe they didn't have any doses before a year, 
because their parents followed Jenny McCarthy, but now they have had a splenectomy because they got in a car crash. Well, then they actually need two doses after um, one year of age, which have to be eight weeks apart. This would be a little bit different than if you were just a normal person. So, so just remember that Hib is important. Um, also, if you've been unvaccinated, you need one dose prior to elective splenectomy, especially um, if you're less than uh, or if you're greater than 15 months. Next, let's talk about Menactra, which is meningococcus, um, serotypes A, C, W, and Y. Next, let's talk uh, Menactra, which is meningococcus serotype A, C, W, Y. This is special for uh, Aspenia, again, because it's an encapsulated organism. Normally, this is given uh, at the... 11 to 12 uh, years of age. However, if you are asplenic, then at 24 months of age or older, you need two doses at least eight weeks apart. Now, the meningococcal serotype B, which is uh, a newer vaccine, this is usually given at age 16. This is also recommended to be given earlier, um, either the Bexera or the Trumemba, whichever one you use, either the two-dose or the three-dose series. The last vaccine we really need to focus on is pneumococcal, so streptococcus pneumoniae, which is very, very important. Between ages two and five, any incomplete series of pneumococcal needs to have at least one dose of the PCV13. If you've had less than three of these doses, then you need two more doses uh, eight weeks apart. If you've never had a history of the uh, PPSV23, you also need one of those, um, and then a second dose five years later. Between ages 6 and 18, if you've never been vaccinated, then you need to get vaccinated. Um, If you've had PCV13 but not 23, then you need two doses of 23. So this one actually gets very, very complicated. Um, I doubt that they would really test you on this because it is so intricate. But just know that um, pneumococcal is special, and these patients actually get vaccinated for this ongoing, unlike normal normal vaccine schedule, you wouldn't be getting a bunch of extra pneumococcals and you wouldn't get be getting the pneumococcal 23, uh, 23, you'd just be getting the 13. That's kind of the most things you need to know. Basically, just remember that asplenics need special vaccines for Hib, Menactra, or meningitis, uh, meningococcal meningitis, and pneumococcal. And that should probably get you enough for the board. As a lot of you know, we are done with all of the vaccines that you really need to know. Obviously, there are some other weird vaccines, but we're, we're just covering the board ones. So now I've decided to talk about some special situations. Today, we're going to talk about post-exposure prophylaxis for vaccine-preventable diseases. So there are going to be five that we talked about today, varicella, pertussis, meningococcemia, hepatitis B, and haemophilus influenza type B. So let's get into it. First, I'm going to talk about pertussis. So this I've seen a lot on my on my own board study come up on questions. If you have a documented case of pertussis, who do you need to prophylax? The answer to this for pertussis is actually quite easy. It's 
everyone. So anyone with close contact to the patient who has pertussis should get prophylaxis with either azithromycin or erythromycin or clorithromycin. Any of the macrolides will work. Um, so this is any household contacts and any close contacts in child care. So basically pertussis is everyone. It's the easy one. Next, we're going to talk about Haemophilus influenza type B. This does not pertain to the non-typeable. This is just for type B, the kind that we vaccinate against. This one's a little tricky. The prophylactic agent, so the antibiotic you will give, is rifampin. However, it's deciding who to, who to give it to. So if you have a patient who has confirmed Haemophilus influenza type B infection, then you need to decide if you're going to prophylax anyone in the childcare setting or in the household. So let's talk about household first. If everyone in the household is above 12 months of age and is completely vaccinated, so they've had their full series, the first three, the two, four, and six months that you get Haemophilus influenza type B at, and everyone is immunocompetent, so there's no immunocompromised states in the house, and everyone is Im uh, fully immunized, then no one needs any type of prophylaxis. So that's the easy one. Okay, now, if anyone in the house of the patient, so the patient has a positive Hib, anyone in their house is under the age of four and has not received their full Hib uh, immunization, so they didn't get their full series yet of Hib, so whatever it is, if they're two months and they've only had one, then that counts. If they're three and they don't vaccinate and they've never had any of their vaccines, then this counts as well. So if anyone in the house under four is incompletely immunized, then everyone in the house needs post-exposure prophylaxis with rifampin. Similarly, if there's anyone in the house who's an immunocompromised child, then all members of the house also get rifampin. That's even if they're over than, older than four. So any immunocompromised state in the house Everyone gets prophylaxis with rifampin in the whole house to help prevent the spread. If Remember, if everyone is healthy and immunized, no prophylaxis needed. Now, they do like to, I've seen this question come up multiple times on my, on my testing preparations. They talk about child care. So if this kid who is Hib positive is in child care or preschool, then the question is, who do we need to prophylax? So the answer is, if there are two or more cases of Hib within 60 days and they're unimmunized or incompletely immunized, then the children at the care, care um, the child care center should get rifampin. So if they are like if they're already immunized, then they're fine. But if they're not immunized, then they should get rifampin. If, they, if there's two or more cases in 60 days. So I've seen a couple questions where they only give you one case or they give you two cases, but they're, you know, a year apart. That doesn't count. Two cases in 60 days and someone is unimmunized in the center, then those people should be prophylaxed with rifampin and you should vaccinate them with Hib as part of their regular series. Okay, let's talk meningitis from meningococcemia. This one's actually fairly straightforward. It's a little less crazy than the Haemophilus. So uh, meningococcemia. 
regardless of immunization sta- uh, immunization status, close contacts should be prophylaxed easily. It's also with rifampin. Um, you can also do Cipro, but um, rifampin is considered like the first line. The close contacts include household contacts, childcare who, you know, basically came into any contact with them within the last week, any direct exposure to secretions. So let's say you were intubating the patient, then that would count um, for secretions and you should uh, probably do that. Any mouth, uh, mouth to mouth resuscitation, which hopefully no one, we're not doing anymore, but whatever. If you sleep uh, next to the patient or in the same house or area within the first seven days prior to infection, then that also counts. And any passenger seated next to this patient on a direct flight for more than eight hours, which is kind of crazy. So if they're been on a plane with them for like a long distance flight and you were sitting next to them, then you also should get rifampin. Okay, next up, hepatitis B. So this one, they love they loved asking this one, and that's fine. It's, it's not hard. So any infant who has some kind of exposure to hepatitis B, either like needle, needle stick or maybe mom has it, etc. Any infant or unvaccinated person, you give them hepatitis B immunoglobulin and you give them the vaccine, hep B vaccine. You start their series. If they've received their full vaccine and, they're, and they're, they have seroconverted, you don't have to do anything. They're good. That's why you give them vaccines. Now, if they've had their full series, but they're not showing positivity um, to antibodies, then again, you need hep B immunoglobulin and you start the whole series over again. If you don't know anyone, check them. Again, the same thing. So it's not that hard. If they don't have good vaccine, like they have no antibodies, then give them immunoglobulin and start their series over just regardless of age. Okay, last but certainly not least, varicella or chickenpox, right? Who should get post-exposure prophylaxis if they are around someone with chickenpox? Immunocompromised kids, you should give them, you should definitely give them uh, acyclovir. And um, you can consider actually immunoglobulin in this state, in this uh, case. So there is a varicella immunoglobulin um, that you can give. Pregnant women without immunity... So they who have not had their vaccines or have not had chickenpox in the past, this is a high-risk situation. This is one of those torch infections. You don't want your babies, the pregnant babies, to get, uh, to get varicella. So mom can get acyclovir and immunoglobulin. If you're a premature infant and you're still in the hospital, then, yeah, that would be a reason to get both acyclovir and immunoglobulin. And then newborn infants within, like, five days, basically, of birth. So... Uh, if they are just out of the womb and they get exposed to varicella from maybe Big Brother or something, then you want to immuno um, you want to cover them with acyclovir and immunoglobulin. It's not super hard, but this one can be kind of nasty in certain populations. So those just remember that the high risk populations are pregnant, immunocompromised, and little little babies. So either premature babies still in the hospital or just born babies a couple days out. That's it. Hopefully that will help you get some points. They love to ask these questions. So listen to this over and over again, and hopefully that will help. Okay, everyone. Hopefully that will be helpful for you for the boards. I would listen to this several times. I know personally I got multiple 
points on the test just from these cootie shots that I listened to the day before my board exam. So happy listening and good luck. (laughs) 